Well, my last 14 years of marriage, Jenny and I have moved seven times. Four of those times were in the same city in Scotland. One of those was our big international move. We went from Scotland to Atlanta, Georgia, and then two other moves were from one state to another. We moved from Georgia to California and then California to here. And there's all sorts of different reasons that people choose to move from one house uh, to another. One of the very common ones is because of a job opportunity uh, in a different state or a different city or a different country. And so people move for that reason. Uh, for some, it's just to get away from a crowded city and they want to be in a more rural area. For some, it's a, a retirement place and they want to go and retire in a specific uh, place. For others, they want to find a better place to, to raise their kids. Or, or in our uh, case, it was to go and plant a church. And, you know, all those things are, are good things to consider. They're, they're practical reasons for why people move. But as Christians, there really should be one question that we ask more than anything else. It's higher than, do they have good schools there? You know, what's the, the cost of living? You know, what's the temperature? You know, there's all these different things that we think of. How good are the job opportunities? But the one that should surpass all of those questions especially if you're going to leave where you are and go to another city or go to another state or even another country, is, is this place where God wants me to go? You know, the four times that Jenny and I moved within Glasgow, the city in Scotland that we were in, you know, they were practical reasons. We didn't leave uh, the actual city. Uh, we just had a home group in our house and we had a, a small apartment when we got married and we only had a few people that could fit in it and we outgrew that pretty quick. And so we're like, all right, Lord, we need something bigger. And so he provided the money and we moved to another apartment that was bigger. And then same thing happened. And then another apartment, same thing happened. And then finally, uh, the biggest apartment we had was suitable for the needs that we had. But, um, you know, those were just kind of practical things. They weren't really hard decisions in the sense that we weren't leaving the city. We weren't leaving where God called us to be. You know, all we were really doing is moving a few minutes down the road uh, to just a bigger place. Uh, and so that wasn't uh, a very hard decision. Um, but the big decision came when we made the biggest decision and biggest move, uh, especially from the distance wise, when we felt like God was calling us to pass on the church in Scotland and then move back to America, move to Georgia and be a part of a Calvary Chapel there. And this move would take us from our city. It would take us from the country. It would take us from the ministry that God had called us to. And so, you know, we really wanted to know the answer to the question, is this where God wants us to go? You know, if we're going to make this huge move, you know, and there's maybe, you know, some things like, hey, we're closer to Jenny's family. We're back in America. A lot of our friends are there. I mean, but there's, you know, things that we could have looked at as, oh, these are good reasons to, to make a move. But the ultimate reason is, hey, is this where God wants us to go? And we asked the very same question before moving here to Pasadena. Lord, is this where you want us to go? Is this where you want us to be? Now, the reason I bring this up, because we come here in, in Genesis chapter 46, and Jacob is now the, the head of the home, the decision maker for the family, and he has to make quite a very significant decision about whether or not to make a big move. Not a move from like, you know what, we're here in Canaan, and, and we'd like to just go down the road because, you know, that there's more places for our sheep to eat, and it's a little, you know, nicer scenery, or, you know, the schools are better. You know, it wasn't that kind of move. It was like, we are going to 
leave the promised land and we're going to go to a completely different country in Egypt. And so this is quite a significant choice that he has to make. If you remember, we ended last week with this surprise to Jacob. His brothers come back from or sons come back from Egypt and tell him, hey, Joseph's alive. He thought Joseph was dead for the last 22 years, and now he finds out Joseph's alive. And not only that, Joseph wants all of us to move back to Egypt because the famine's going to last for five more years. We'll have a place to stay. We'll have provision. And so Joseph wants us to come. And now it's up to Jacob to make this decision. Am I going to take my family from the place where God has called us, the promised land. And remember, it took a while to get him there. You know, he was out with Laban for a long time and he ran away from the promised land because he was a deceiver and his brother wanted to kill him. And it took many years for the Lord to finally get him back in the promised land. And when he gets back, God confirms, hey, I want you here. And now this decision, should I leave? Not only me, but all of us, the promised land and go to Egypt. And so that is the question that Jacob has to answer that is the decision that he has to make and you know we're, we're going to see that he does something prior to making this decision that's a good example it's one of the few times that we see good examples in Jacob's life but he's going to do something that is a good example to us because all of us have decisions like this it might not be just moving you know to another city or state or country you know it could be moving jobs it could be all sorts of different things where we're like lord i'm not sure if this is what you want from me i'm not sure if this is where you have me and so what Jacob does here is a great example to us And then we're going to see that God reveals to Jacob what he wants Jacob to do. And again, we're going to see a good example of Jacob. And he's going to respond to that in a good way. That he's actually going to do something positive for once. And then we're also going to see what God is able to do in the circumstances that should be an encouragement to us as well. And so those are the three main things we're going to be looking at tonight. But we're going to start here with this Decision that Jacob has to make whether or not to take his family from Canaan to Egypt and what he does prior to making that decision. So Genesis chapter 46, starting in verse one, says this. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his uh, sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, Jacob has 
really two pretty big reasons for why he would want to make this move. And, you know, whenever you're kind of thinking about, should I move, should I not, should I do another job or whatever, you go always usually kind of give the, the pros and the cons. You know, what are the pros of moving? What are the cons of moving? Well, Jacob has two really big pros. The number one on his list, I'm sure, was I want to see my son Joseph, the favored one that I haven't seen in 22 years because I thought he was dead. I'm sure that's probably the biggest driving force of I want to get to Egypt and see my son son. Now, the second biggest reason I would imagine would be, I just heard that this famine is going to last five more years. Uh, And so this would be really good for my family to survive if we're all in Egypt there where we have plenty of provisions and we're not going to starve to death. And so he has two really good practical reasons for why he should make this move to Egypt. But you know what? What I like about Jacob here is even though he sees, hey, there's a great reason. My son's there. There's another great reason. You know, I want to protect my family. He's still at a point where it's like, you know what? There's still the answer to the question that I don't know. Is this where God wants me? Not my emotions are going to drive me here because I can't wait to see Joseph. Or, you know what? My emotions are going to drive me because I want to protect everybody. He really wants to come to a place, but first, before I make a decision, just based on those things, I want to know if this is where God has me to go. And so he starts heading towards Egypt, you think, and I think perhaps maybe he's actually specifically heading somewhere else because we're told that he's journeying and he comes to a place, if you can see on the map here, the journey starts around Shechem. And he travels, and it's traveling south, so technically he is heading towards Egypt. But before he gets out of the promised land, he stops in a place called Beersheba. And now, Beersheba is a very significant place, a very significant place for Jacob. Because if you remember, as we've gone through Genesis, it was very important to Abraham. As Abraham was in Beersheba, he plants a tamarisk tree calls on the name of the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him. This was a very big turning point in Abraham's life where the Lord speaks and and clearly reveals things to him. And it was there in Beersheba where he calls on God's name and God reveals things to him. But it wasn't just Abraham, it was also his son Isaac, which is Jacob's dad. He builds an altar there in Beersheba. And after he builds that altar in Beersheba, he calls on the name of the Lord and the Lord speaks to Isaac as well. And so Jacob realizes this is the place where God speaks to people. And I want you to realize God hasn't spoken to Jacob in a long time. The last time that God spoke to Jacob is when he named him Israel. Remember they had that fight right before he met Esau? We haven't had an encounter between Jacob and God since then. God hasn't spoken to him since then. And so, you know, it's not like, hey, I'm just going to talk to God and he's going to speak to me. Jacob hasn't heard from the Lord in many years And he realizes, I need some information right now. I need to know whether or not it's okay for me to take my family out of the promised land and take them to Egypt. And so I think he specifically went to Beersheba because he knows that's where God speaks. He spoke to my grandfather. He spoke to my father. And so I'm going to go there and do what they did. And hopefully he'll speak to me as well. And so as he comes to Beersheba, we're told that he offers sacrifices to God. And he most likely offers them on the altar that his dad Isaac built. Because Isaac built an altar there. And the Lord does what he did with Abraham. And what he did with Isaac. The Lord speaks to Jacob as Jacob takes time to spend with the Lord. 
And he speaks to Jacob in a vision at night. So before Jacob leaves the promised land, but before he heads off and makes this big decision about taking his family to Egypt, he stops, stops everything. And he sacrifices the Lord. He spends time with the Lord. He's seeking to hear from God before he moves on. And I think this is such an important thing for each one of us to do when we're in situations where we're wanting to know, Lord, is this where you want me to be? Is this the job you want me to take? Is this the place you want me to move? Is this the person you want me to date? Is this whatever the question may be where we're wanting to know God's answer I think what Jacob does here is such a good example for us. In situations where we need that confirmation from the Lord, am I going in the right direction? Am I pursuing the right things? Am I acting in the right way? I think whenever we find ourselves in that kind of situation, the first thing we should do is stop the journey. Stop pursuing, stop moving forward, because too often it's like, I'm just going to keep going even though I haven't even talked to the Lord, even though I don't know if He wants me to continue in this direction. I'm going to keep dating this person even though I don't know if they're right. I'm going to keep packing for this move even though I don't know if God wants me there. I'm going to keep pursuing this job even though I don't know if God wants me to have it. Stop! Stop the pursuit. Stop doing things that might just be a waste of your time and just get with the Lord and allow Him to speak to you and reveal whether or not He wants you there. And I would encourage you, get a quiet place. A quiet place where you can just listen to the Lord. You know, I've encouraged many Christians over the years, especially when they come and they're just like, you know, Pastor, I have this big decision to make and can you pray for me? And, you know, and one of the things I'll encourage them to do is, is just get quiet before the Lord and, and listen to Him. And, and there's been several times over the years where people will just say, you know what? Why? What's the point? The Lord never speaks to me anyway. And that's not a true statement. I think the reality is God is regularly speaking. The problem is we're not listening. It's not that God's silent to us as his children. He's definitely speaking. We're just not listening. You know, our relationship, like any relationship, should be a a two-way conversation. But too often, especially in prayer, we throw up our requests and then just go out on our day. You know, right before we go out the door, it's like, Lord, help me with this, this, and this, and then boom, we're gone. And we don't take any time to listen. We don't take any time to be quiet. We don't take any time to allow the Lord to speak. We just kind of speak to Him and then don't listen to what He might want to say to us. You know, throughout the Bible, we see that God speaks in many different ways. Like we see here, it's a vision by night. You know, quite a dramatic way that God speaks to Jacob. Elisha, we're told, God uses a still, small voice. Many times God speaks through other people that he brings into your life to speak into your life. But the way that God speaks most commonly is through his word. That's the way that he's almost always regularly investing and speaking to us is through the word of God. And so when you're seeking confirmation for something... If you're not in the Word of God, you're missing one of the greatest sources of getting to hear God's voice. That He would speak to you. Because if you're waiting like, Lord, I'm waiting for the audible voice. Well, that doesn't happen very often. I'm waiting for the vision at night. That doesn't happen very often either. If you want regular communication from the Lord, His Word is the place that we need to be. And we need to be quiet before Him so that we can actually take time to listen To what he wants to share with us. And so the first thing I want you to take note of tonight. Is when you need confirmation from God in something. Stop. Get alone. Get out your Bible. 
and listen to him. Stop. Stop the pursuit. Stop where you're doing. Stop where you're headed. Because it might not be the right way, the right direction, what the Lord wants. And get alone with him. Get out your Bible. Listen to him. Realize that he knows every hair on your head. He is wanting to be impacting every aspect of your life. He wants to confirm whether this is right or wrong. It's not like God's ever going to be saying, you know, you're saying, Lord, I really want to know your will here. And he's like, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you. I mean, he wants us to know his will. He's never going to be in a place where I'm going to hide that from you because I'd much rather you follow your own desires than mine. You know, God's not like that. If we really want to know what his will is, he really wants to tell us. So the reason we don't know it isn't because he's not willing to share it. It's usually because we're not willing to take the time to study the word and to listen and receive what he wants to say to us. And, you know, and sometimes he, he gives us answers that we don't like. No, we don't like that answer. Wait, we don't like that answer even more. And so sometimes the Lord just says, you know what? I just want you to wait here. No, I want to keep going forward. No, I want you to stop. And I want you to wait on me because there's things that I'm doing and that you don't know about yet. And you're going to see it when it comes together. But you just need to trust me and wait. So Jacob does this wonderful thing. He stops. He sacrifices to the Lord. He does what his grandfather and his father did. And he's hoping for the same results that the Lord would speak. And he gets the same result. God does speak. And notice what God says in verses 2 through 4. God says, Jacob, Jacob. And I love that. He starts with just calling Jacob by name. And Jacob says, here I am. And then God tells Jacob some very important things. I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. God shares several things here with Jacob that I think would be a great encouragement to him. The first is a reminder of who God is. I am God. I'm the God of your father, Isaac. And the second thing is to help Jacob know the decision because Jacob's ultimately coming for an answer. Should I take my family from the promised land that you called me to and leave and go to Egypt? And God says, you know what? Don't fear going down to Egypt. You know, whenever you have God come to someone and say, don't fear, it reveals something. They're afraid of that particular thing. And so, you know, Jacob's in a place where I'm fearful of leaving the promised land and heading down to Egypt. And he would have good reason to be fearful of doing that. Uh, and I want you to think about some of the reasons why he would be fearful about doing that. Um, God's already made it very clear to Jacob, and it took a while to get him to the promised land. This is where I want you, and this is where I'm going to ultimately give you or descendants this land. I'm going to make them a great nation. And so making a decision to leave the promised land and take all of his descendants with him is a big deal. Because in his mind, he's thinking, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. God took all this time to get Abraham here, and then Isaac here, and then me here. And with each one of us, he's promised, this is our land. He's given it to us. So why should we leave the land that God has given to us? But you know what? If that's not a good enough reason, I want you to think about what he already has known about his grandfather, and his father, because both of them were in the exact same situation that he finds himself in. Remember Abraham, the first time he finally is obedient and comes to the promised land, he's probably thinking, I'm here, this is going to be so great. And what does he find? A famine. 
Just like there is in the land right now, a famine. So what does Jacob do, or uh, Abraham do? He leaves the promised land, and where does he go? Egypt. God didn't want that. That wasn't God's plan. God wanted Abraham to stay in the promised land, but yet, because of the famine, he chooses to go. And as we know from what happened, Egypt was not a good place for him. He had lots of sin and consequences of sin in Egypt. And finally, in his obedience, he comes back to where God wanted him to be. But you know, Jacob's father, Isaac, was also in a similar situation. A famine hits while Isaac's in the promised land. Isaac's considering whether or not to leave to go to Egypt. And God specifically says, don't go to Egypt. Stay here in the promised land. And Isaac is obedient and chooses not to go. So as Jacob finds himself in the situation that grandfather and father found themselves in, he realizes God didn't want either of them to leave the promised land and go to Egypt for the sake of a famine. And that's one of his big reasons probably for going. Obviously, there's the desire to see Joseph, but the real probably underlying thing is we got to go. There's a famine here. And maybe he's thinking, well, maybe this is not faith. You know, there wasn't the faith in Abraham to stay and and Isaac did stay because God said to stay and and God took care of Isaac and and God can take care of us. And so maybe I'm not supposed to go. You can see why he would be fearful to make this decision because he sees the pattern that God has already shown in his grandfather and father that during famine, stay in the promised land. Don't go to Egypt. But he's seeking the Lord's direction and the Lord makes clear, you know what, for you, Jacob, it's different than dad. It's different than granddad. I actually want you to leave the promised land and I want you to go to Egypt. Do not fear going down to Egypt. And then God gives Jacob three reasons why he shouldn't fear going down to Egypt. Really three promises of what God will do for him so he realizes it's okay to take not only myself, but my whole family to Egypt. And God says, I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. God's first promise, the first reason why he says, it's okay to go down to Egypt, Jacob, is because I will make you a great nation there. Think about that, because I'm sure in the mind of Jacob, his descendants were going to be made a great nation in the promised land. You know, that was probably just the assumption that he had. This is the land you're going to give us, so surely you're going to make us a great nation here, not some other place. But God's saying, no, actually, that's not the plan that I have, Jacob. My plan's better than that. I'm removing you right now from the land of Canaan, and I'm bringing you to the land of Egypt, and it's in Egypt that I'm actually going to make you a great nation nation. And you know, we noted a couple weeks ago why this was so important. Because as we've seen in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, they want to intermarry with Jacob's families. They've already come to him and said, hey, why don't you let our sons marry your daughters and your daughters marry our sons and we'll join together and it'll be so great and we'll trade with one another. And we've seen that throughout the history of Israel where that greatly corrupts them. Whenever they start intermarrying and bringing in not just new wives, but the pagan gods that they worship, it's all bad news for the nation of Israel. God wants to protect them from where they are, this small little group, from already getting corrupted from the Canaanites who are willing to intermarry. 
So he says, I'm going to remove you from there where I'm going to take you to the most racist place on the earth right now, Egypt, where they hate Hebrews. They hate you. They won't even eat with you. They wouldn't even think of doing other things of Mary. And so, you know what? We're going to bring you here, and this is going to be such a great place for you to be able to be a nation without all of the things that corrupt you like they would in Canaan. David Guzik wrote this. God told Israel what his purpose was in bringing this large family or clan down to Egypt. Because of the exclusive segregated nature of Egyptian life, Israel's descendants could grow as a large, distinct nation there. Egypt became like a mother's womb to Israel as a nation where they could grow from something small to something full size. And so God says, I got, a, I got a plan here, Jacob. I know you thought the plan was in the promised land. I was going to make a big nation for you. But no, it's going to be in Egypt. So don't fear going down there because I'm going to fulfill my promise because it was a threefold promise, right? Hey, I'm going to give you the promised land was one of the promises. I'm going to make you a great nation was the other promise. And all the earth is going to be blessed through you, speaking of the Messiah that's going to come. And so Jacob's thinking, how are you going to fulfill those if we leave the promised land? And God says, well... I'm going to fulfill it because actually my plan has always been to make you a great nation in Egypt and then to bring you guys back to the promised land. And does God keep his promise? Well, yes, he does. In the 430 years that Jacob's descendants are in Egypt, they go from a small group of people to millions of people that God does make into a great nation. God's second promise and his second reason for why Jacob should go to Egypt in verse 4 Notice what God says. God will go down with Jacob and his family to Egypt and he will surely bring them up again to the promised land. I think one of the main reasons Jacob's concerned about leaving the promised land with his family is will we ever get back? If we go to Egypt and we go to all, I know my sons, man, and we get to all the pleasures of Egypt, they're not coming back here. You know, I think there was a real concern is if we go there, will we ever come to the place that you've told us to be? And so once again, just like God said, I'll make you a great nation. God here gives another promise. Jacob, not only am I sending you, I'm going with you. And I'm going to be the one to bring your family, your relatives back. A wonderful promise that God makes to Jacob. And once again, does God fulfill his promise? Yes. The next book that we're going to study is Exodus. And we're going to see the fulfillment of this promise where God uses Moses. 430 years, the nation of Israel's there. In the latter part, they're in slavery. But God brings Moses and delivers them out of Egypt. And where does he take them? Back to the promised land, just like he promised he would. God's third promise would have been a more personal thing for Jacob. Probably the main reason Jacob wants to go to Egypt to begin with, he wants to see Joseph that he hasn't seen for 22 years. New American... Um, New King James Story version says, Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. And that's not the best translation. It's kind of like, well, what does that mean? Uh, the ESV translates more clearly. It says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is speaking of the day in which Jacob dies. And normally you would have family close to you. And you see that movie all the time where people die with their eyes open and the person you know, closes their eyes for him. This is what God is speaking of, that 
From now until the day that you pass away, you're going to get to be with Joseph and he is going to be with you that day that you come to be with me, that you die on this earth and he'll be the ones who actually uses his own hands to close your eyes. And this is just a great promise to Jacob because he's desperate to see his boy. And there might have still even been a a sense of, is it true? Because remember when he was told he didn't believe it. And then, you know, when he saw all the things that came from Egypt, he was kind of convinced. But there still might be a little bit in him that's like, is it really true? Am I really going to see my son after 22 years? And not only God says you're going to see him, you're going to get to spend the last years of your life with him. And the day that you're going to die, he is going to be there with you. Jacob needs confirmation. Lord, I feel like I'm supposed to move my family from the promised land to Egypt. I want to see my son. I want to protect my family from this famine. But yet I need to know the real answer to this question. Is this what you want from me? And he does a great thing. Comes before the Lord, sacrifices before the Lord, takes time to seek the Lord. The Lord speaks to him, makes very clear, yes, Jacob, I do want you to take your family to Egypt. There I'll make a great nation out of you. And there I'm going to bring you back. And you know what? The last days that you have there are going to be days that you get to have with your son. And this is the same thing that God wants to do for us. When we need confirmation, too often you know, we're trying in our own strength. We're trying to kick down doors, make things happen instead of just stopping and seeking the Lord and waiting on Him and allowing Him to reveal to us, is this where you want me to be? Is this the job? Is this the person? Is this the place? Whatever it may be, Lord, give me the direction. Help me with the decision. Show me what you want from me and watch how He'll speak to you like He did with Jacob and direct you where He wants you to be. Now in verses 8 through 27, we're given a list of everybody who comes with Jacob. And this was important, you know, as you go on after this, because the 12 tribes come from Jacob's 12 sons, and then, you know, his sons have sons, and then go on, so on and so forth. But as people, as this nation starts to develop and grow, that they want to be able to trace their lineage. And so this is an important thing. But also as we look through this, as, as we get to the end of this list, uh, I'm going to share uh, some other things that I think are, are important to take note of. But really this is broken down into four different groups. And we've kind of seen this throughout the times that we've seen Jacob's family. It's broken down based on his wives. Uh, and so, well, really you could say two wives and two maids. But, you know, he's had kids with four different women. Uh, and so we're going to see the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren that Jacob has with each one of these women. Uh, and these are the people that are going to travel with him to Egypt. And so the first group are the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that Jacob had with Leah. And so let's look at what we see here in verses 8 through 15. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The son of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the, sons of the, the son of the Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Jershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Oman died in the land of Canaan. 
The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sired, Elon, and Jeli. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All these persons, his sons and daughters, were 33. And so from Leah, she had the most boys, actually the most children, period, for Jacob. She had six sons, uh, one daughter. They had 25 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren, but we're told that two of the grandchildren, they died uh, in the land of Canaan. So obviously they're not going to make the journey to the land of Egypt. And so from Leah, Jacob has 33 children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren that join him on the journey to Egypt. The second group are the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren that Jacob had with Leah's maid Zilpah. Verse 16, the sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Erli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isu, Beria. These are great names to name your kids, by the way. And Sarah, their sister. The sons of Berea were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So Zilpah is Leah's maid. She has two sons with Jacob, and they have 12 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. And so from Zilpah, Jacob has 16 children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren that travel with him to Egypt. The third group of children are the ones that came from Jacob's favored wife, Rachel, who is now dead. Um, Verse 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin, And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potpiperi, priest of On, bore to him. So Joseph, he has two kids. Benjamin, on the other hand, this also gives us kind of an idea of how old Benjamin was. We kind of think of him as this little kid when he goes back the second time, but uh, he can't be a little kid. Notice how many kids he has. Uh, Were Bella, Beecher, Ashbel, Gera, Nahum, Eli, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Arb. These were the sons of Rachel whom were born to him, Jacob, 14 persons in all. So from Rachel, Jacob has two sons and 12 grandchildren. Ten of those came from Benjamin. So just the fact that had 10 children, he had to be, you know, pretty, um, he was much older than we probably think of him as he made that journey. So 14 children and grandchildren go with uh, Jacob from Uh, to Egypt. The fourth group is the group from Rachel's maid, Bilhah. The sons of Dan were Hashem. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Juni, Jezer, and Shelem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. So Bilhah has two sons with Jacob and five grandchildren. So they had seven children and grandchildren go with him to Egypt. And now we're given the total amount because this is an important number that we'll note in a minute of people that went with Jacob to Egypt, verses 26 and 27. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's son's wives, so besides the daughter-in-laws, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. 
So you say, wait, we got 66 and 70. What's going on here? Well, verse 26 tells us all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body. So first of all, these are just those who are literally his descendants from his children and their children. It does not include the wives. So his daughter-in-laws are not in this list. We're 66 people. So that we looked at all those. We got 66 people. Well, what's happened to the other four? Well, these are the people that went with Jacob. So Jacob's not part of the list. They're joining him. So you add Jacob to that. It goes from 66 to 67. We're still missing three. Where are the other three? Well, Joseph has two sons. One plus two equals three. That's where you get your 70. The other three are already in Egypt. So 66 plus Jacob, 67, travel to Egypt. But when they all get there, there's 70 of them because Joseph and his two sons are awaiting their arrival. So that is how many people come. And I think there's two important things to note here about this list of Jacob's descendants that I want to point out. First is the fact that all the descendants of Jacob come with him. Jacob's been a schemer. He's been a planner. He's been a man who's always kind of had that, you know, I got plan B. I'm going to protect myself in this way and that way. And, you know, the Lord says, go to Egypt. I'm going to make you a great nation there. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. And the Jacob of old would be like, you know, I don't know if I really believe you're going to bring us back. Maybe I should leave some people here to kind of hold down the fort to make sure that we got a a presence in the promised land, you know, that that we can build things up. And and we got all this property. We got all this stuff. Let's make sure we, we keep a hold of that instead of trusting the Lord is going to bring us back and trusting the Lord is going to take care of us. The old Jacob would have probably not brought everybody. You know, maybe just brought the favorite and you you guys, you can stay here. I don't want you here with me in Egypt anyway. But, um, you know, now it's like I'm taking everybody. And this is really a step of faith that we see in Jacob's life, that he finally gets to the place where it's like, I am going to take what God has said to me and promised me and actually put action to it. And I think this is such a great example for us, because it's great to say, I trust the Lord It's great to say, I'll trust that he's guiding me or going to provide for me or whatever it may be. But so often we deny that we actually do through our actions. And so the second thing I want you to take note of tonight is we need to trust that God is always true to his word, not just by saying it, but by acting upon it. You know, I know there has been, as I look back on my Christian life, many times where I made the statement of, oh, yes, I trust God can do whatever. And then right away, oftentimes, my actions have proven that's not the case at all. I know so often when I was in Scotland, especially the first early years with provision, oh, I trust God can provide. And then when I had a bad month or the provision wasn't coming as I thought, I start freaking out. And with the way in which I acted, it showed that what I claimed didn't match what I lived. And so often that's the case. Oh, I really trust the Lord until I actually have to put action to that. I actually have to do something with that because Jacob's now in that place. Am I really going to trust what God said? He told me to go. He told me he will make a nation for me. He told me he will bring me back. He told me I'll get to see my son. But do I believe it? Well, he's showing through his actions. Yes, I do. I'm taking everybody there because I believe that what God says is actually going to happen. You know, in James chapter 2, we're given a similar Reality, where James kind of brings in faith that's just words, 
versus faith that's connected with works. And he's trying to say, well, which one's better? James chapter 2, 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which, they, which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Yeah, James is bringing up this reality. You know, if you claim to have faith, but it's not in the things that you do, you know, what kind of faith is that? You know, it's kind of like seeing someone who has no, the homeless person out in the street, they got no food, they got no blanket, and you come and you say to them, you know, be warm and be filled. But you don't give them any blanket to help them be warm, you don't give them any food to fill their belly. He's saying, what good are those words? They're empty, they're useless, it doesn't help that person at all. It's in the same way. If you're just claiming with your words you have faith, but there's no works that go with it, then maybe you want to really reevaluate what kind of trust, faith, you really have in the Lord. And that's what we're seeing here with Jacob as well. If Jacob, like Abraham, many times did, you know, hey, oh, I trust you, but I'm going to go say, you know, you're my sister. I trust you, but I'm going to leave Egypt to go to Egypt. Well, he's showing with his actions that actually, no, I don't really trust you the way that I should. And so this is a great thing that we see here. Jacob taking everybody shows that he actually did trust the Lord. The second important thing about this list is how small it is. We got 70 people. You can add the wives. We don't know how many of them are still alive. You know, let's say they all are until we get about, you know, maybe 82, 83. But it's just still a very small amount of people. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Out of this, I mean, we got less than 100 people and you're going to make a great nation from us. You know, from the time that God called Abram, it took 25 years to add Isaac. Once Isaac was born, it took 60 years to add another son, which was Jacob. Jacob took 50 years to add 12 more sons. And you're thinking, man, at this pace, we're never going to be a great nation for like another, you know, thousand years. But yet in the next 430 years, God is going to take this small group and he's going to multiply them to a couple million people. And something I think important for us to remember as we see this is God can take what seems to be insignificant. And I'm sure even sometimes as Abraham was thinking, all I got is one son and you're going to make a great nation. Isaac, you know, I got two. You're going to make a great nation. I got 12. You know, but, but still, there's this kind of, man, this is going to take, take so long, Lord, for you to do something significant with something so small and seemingly insignificant but yet it really doesn't take the Lord that long to make a major big nation out of the nation of Israel. And that encourages me because I see so often how God works, how he works in people. He works in those who are what the world would see as insignificant, as small, as weak. And yet God can take people and he can do great things through them. And that's the third thing I want you to take note of tonight. God can take insignificant people and do amazing things with them. 
pretty much everybody that we've seen in the book of Genesis, and you continue on through the Bible, are pretty much insignificant, weak failures that have lots of sin issues. I mean, (laughs) Abraham was definitely that person. Isaac was. We've surely seen that with Jacob. And yet God is able to take these people and he's able to do wonderful things through them because it's not about the greatness of the people. It's about the greatness of God. And he, because he's great, can do great things, even in spite of the fact that we aren't great and that we often do really stupid things and sinful things. But God is still able to do great things in and through us. And so, you know, I hope that encourages you, especially as you're thinking of, Lord, do I really want to listen to where you're leading? Do I really want to seek your counsel as to where you want me to be? Remember, God has something he wants of you. He wants to do something significant. And even if you think, well, I'm insignificant, how could God ever use me? Well, look through the Bible and see that that's pretty much the only people he does use are insignificant people. Well, now we're going to see that Jacob and Joseph are going to have this reunion. 22 years has gone by, and finally, father and son are going to meet once again. Verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face, because you are still alive. So Jacob, he sends Judah ahead of the, the pack, which I'm sure is moving pretty slow with you know, the age of some being really old with Jacob and some probably being really young. And so they're moving at a, a family pace. And he sends Judah ahead to Joseph to say, Hey, We're almost here, but where is this land of Goshen that we're supposed to go to? And so Joseph, he doesn't want to wait. He gets into a chariot. He heads over to Goshen to see his dad. And they come and they just hug one another and weep on one another. We're told for a while. And this must have been just a wonderful reunion. And, you know, Jacob looks at his son. He's like, you know what? Now I can finally die. You're alive, and now I can kind of go to my deathbed in peace because I know that my son is still alive. And, you know, I can't even imagine how amazing this reunion would be. I mean, just think about someone that you deeply love and how hard it would be to be separated from them for an elongated period of time, but how joyous it would be to be able to be reunited. You know, I remember when Jenny and I finally got engaged. You know, I had already been in Scotland for four years, and so I went back to Scotland, and she was in Alabama and taking care of all the the wedding things. And so it was several months that we were apart. You know, we talked on the phone, but we didn't have any time together in those last bits before we got married. And I remember, you know, getting off the plane in Atlanta airport and getting to see her after several months of being apart. And, you know, it was just a a great, uh, you know, feeling, and it was just so joyous. And that was only a few months of separation and we got to talk you know over the phone i mean imagine 22 years not only are you separated you think your son's dead and you're the son who has no clue what dad has heard about you and so for 22 years they've been separated and now they finally get to be joined together and just how special that must have been but you know as i was studying this passage something i thought about that i hadn't really thought much about before is just the reality that joseph is a picture of Jesus. And to think of what the reunion must have been like. Jesus left the throne of heaven. 
to come become one of us. Ultimately, as he was on the cross, notice what he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time in all of the existence of you know, the triune God, there's been this separation between the Father and the Son because of the sin of mankind. But then when he comes back to the throne to sit at the right hand of the Father after going and fulfilling all that he's done for us, what an amazing reunion that must have been and continues to be. Well, now we're going to finish this chapter once again seeing why Egypt and specifically the land of Goshen was the great place and plan for God to take Israel and his descendants and make them into a great nation. Verse 31 through 34. Then Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation that you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Here we see something very significant. When Joseph told the brothers, I have a place for you, he had already thought about the place of Goshen. Remember, Jacob's even sending you know, Judah ahead. Where is Goshen? Where are we supposed to go? So Joseph wanted the, the descendants of Jacob, his brothers and all the family, to be in Goshen. But it's as interesting that he says, you know what? You guys are shepherds, and that's good. And when Pharaoh asks you what's your occupation, make sure you tell all of you, which you are, your shepherds from when you were young to now. Everybody's a shepherd. Well, why is that so important? Because if you had some other occupation, Pharaoh wanted to be kind. Hey, you know what? We have a great job here in building with this and you can come join here. Oh, we have this. No, no. I want all of us to be in Goshen because notice what we're told about shepherds. They're an abomination to the Egyptians. Wow, we got a double whammy here. The Hebrews are an abomination to the Egyptians. Shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And you guys are Hebrew shepherds. So you're a double abomination to the Egyptians. Why is that good? Because they're going to leave you alone in the land of Goshen. And that is going to be your place where you can grow and thrive. And you're not going to be influenced. And you're not going to have the problems that we've had in Canaan with the Egyptians. Because you're a double abomination and they're not going to want to be around you. But this was good. This was God's plan. He's like, you know what? It's great that we're shepherds, that they are having abomination. It's great that we're Hebrews because now I have this special place. And we're going to see even as we go into the book of Exodus, how they thrive in the land of Goshen. So in this chapter, we see Jacob needing confirmation from God as to whether or not to leave the promised land and to go to Egypt, a very big decision that he's faced with. And he does something very wise. He stops the journey, sacrifices to the Lord, gets alone with God, and God confirms and speaks to him. And as we mentioned, this is something very important for us to do as we're seeking confirmation from the Lord. Stop, get alone, get out your Bible, and listen to Jesus. Now, once the Lord confirmed to Jacob, I want you in Egypt, he does it. And this is a thing that I think is too often common in our lives. Lord, speak to me about this. And God says, okay, this is what I want you to do. 
that's really not what I want to do, so I'm going to do this instead. And so the first stage is, yes, I need God to reveal to me what he wants, but it does you absolutely no good if you're not willing to take that counsel and do it. And so the Lord will speak if you take the time to listen, but when he speaks, be willing to obey. Be willing to do what he says. And, and even if it's, you know, with this one, I'm sure it's like Joseph's like, great, because or Jacob, I wanted to go see Joseph. I wanted to get there. But there's sometimes where the Lord says, you know what? I want you to stay in this situation. What? I need to get out of this. I hate this. It is so horrible. You know, I want to move. I want to get to this new place and this new thing. And the Lord says, no, that's not what, I'm gonna, that's not what I want. Well, Lord, you don't know what's best for me. I'm going anyway. You know, so we got to be willing to obey when the Lord speaks. And then you know, the third thing that I hope is just an encouragement is how God can just take something so small and do something so significant through it, just like he can through you and through I. And this is why I think it's so important that we really seek the Lord. He has a specific plan he has what he wants to do in each one of our lives. And so often we just sometimes feel like, you know what? I don't have any real purpose. God isn't really going to use me. You know, yeah, he uses other people, but I'm not part of that group. And we miss the reality that every child of God, God wants to do great things through. And this is why we should be those who say, Lord, within every decision I make, I want to make sure that you are guiding me, that I'm following what you have for me, that you are the one leading, not I'm leading and I'm asking you to follow me, but Lord, I'm following you. And then realize, you know what? God can do great things through messed up people like he does with Jacob here. And so, you know, when you're making decisions, there's nothing wrong with having your pros and con list. There's nothing wrong with laying out, oh, this would be nice and being near family. That might be good or bad for you, depending on your relationship. You know, this job would be better or this relationship, whatever it is. Those are not, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to kind of weigh those things out. But at the end of the day, make sure the number one question that you're asking is, is this where God wants me to be? And even if I have a list of all these pros and maybe there's not one con except that God is telling me not to go, am I willing to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you? Even though there's all these good benefits of leaving or moving or doing whatever it is that I want to do, yet... I feel like you are saying no. Am I willing to obey in the midst of that? And so that's the real challenge for us. But we see, and it's great to see some encouragement from Jacob's life actually doing what he maybe should have done so often before this, but chose not to. But he finally seeks the Lord when he needs guidance and the Lord reveals what he wants him to do. And then Jacob's obedience. So good for him. Any thoughts on uh, what we looked at tonight? Question. So last week you said that um, so when John would talk.